Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Ontario is moving to a new color code system for tracking COVID-19 cases. Is it going to be effective? Well, we'll talk about it. The man known as Helmet Guy is in the news again. He's been charged with uttering threats online and breaching his probation. Got all the details for you. And a new policy change from Ottawa will target streaming platforms like Netflix and Spotify. They may not like the regulations being proposed. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Ontario is now moving towards a new color-coded system for tracking COVID-19 cases. Uh, there's been a great deal of uh, concern and a lot of conversation about just what kind of criteria the government was using to uh, make a determination as to where the hot spots were and what uh, the evaluation was to determine what that was going to be. Uh, there's the hope, I guess, that this system is going to address a lot of those shortcomings and those concerns. Global's Brianna Carnegie has the details. Areas currently in modified stage two will be allowed to partially reopen, including Ottawa, Peel and York regions on November 7th and Toronto a week later. This means gyms and indoor dining will be open with the capacity limits and restricted hours. Premier Doug Ford says those areas and eastern Ontario are under a new tier of restrict or orange, which imposes intermediate measures. If the rate of virus transmission rises, they could be moved into control, red or lockdown. By taking these steps today, we'll be in a stronger position to handle the second wave and the future ones. Brant, Hamilton, Durham and Halton are under Protect Yellow, which has loosened measures. All other health units are in the Prevent Green stage, which allows the broadest activities like Stage 3. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. So London Middlesex, of course, is going to be in, in the green. That's, I guess, normal, such as it is. And Hamilton uh, in the yellow right now, uh, which means there's some concerns in this area. So let's talk about the system and, and whether or not this is going to make for a more effective system and a more understandable system, I guess. I want to bring Alison Thompson into the conversation, Associate Professor of Pharmaceutical Sciences and a Professor of Public Health Sciences at the University of Toronto. Uh, professor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you back in the program today. Thanks for having me. What you what you read on what the premier announced yesterday is this uh, is this an effective methodology? Well, um, I think that remains to be seen, but I'm not optimistic about this, to be honest. Tell me why. Well, I think that the um, the threshold for moving in and out of these stages is is not what it should be, and it's it's a little too permissive, um, especially given um, that. You know, Toronto is is at about a ten percent positivity rate, and we're starting to open up again in a week or so. So, I mean, I think I think it could potentially work, but I think that the key measures that they're using are a little bit too permissive. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because as I looked this over yesterday after they made the announcement, uh, I, I was pretty much struck the same way that you were about this stuff, Allison. Because, uh, for instance, Hamilton is, is in a yellow area right now, which means there's going to have to be some restrictions put on here. Uh, when you talk about bars and restaurants, uh, basically one of the things that jumped out at me is they said, well, there's going to be a curfew. You can't stop. You have to stop serving uh, at about midnight, I think it was, uh, is what they used, uh, which, which doesn't really mean a whole lot of anything to anybody. I mean, you know, in other words, you can do whatever you want until midnight and then after that you have to shut down uh if there's a concern here about the spread it's still going to be there up until midnight isn't it of course and and you know i guess that's aimed at trying to eliminate um people who may be intoxicated and less likely to observe social distancing and and other public health measures from um you know just having too many contacts but i think that's that 
why midnight? You know, let's, uh, um, you know, apart from Cinderella, you know, there's really no reason to say, <laughs> <laughs> like, are they all going to turn into pumpkins or something? I don't know. Uh, it's it's a bit of a strange, a strange cutoff to me. Well, especially because, you know, there's a concern here, and, and as you and I have talked about in the past, there uh, there are some statistics and, and some variables here that we have to consider uh, when we talk about spread. And, of course, as, as we've talked about in the past, it's uh, the amount of how quickly the spread doubles, uh, the, the possibility of, uh, of, of, of infection and, and the things that we've talked about over the last nine months, I guess, now. Uh, and... I, I don't see that this is really addressing any of that. In other words, if there's a problem with restaurants and bars, if there's a problem with social distancing uh, and spread, uh, especially when in some of the, the gyms that they've talked about as well, uh, I don't see any new measures to try to, to do anything about that. They're basically just saying, keep doing what you're doing, and if it gets bad, we'll have to put you into another restriction, restricted area. Yeah, I mean, I think ideally it would, it would be great if we could have a more more targeted approach, but they haven't really said, you know, they've got this this list of key measures around, you know, the capacity for contact tracing, the R value, you know, how many new cases are generated by each sick person, and then the percent of COVID tests that come back positive, and then, you know, how many weekly cases are we having, but how are those being played off against one another? Because if we just look at one of those metrics, say percent of the COVID tests that are coming back positive, I think, you know, if we just use that alone, I think we would be moving into a different color um, pretty rapidly. So how are those things balanced against one another? We still don't know. There's no transparency, transparency around how those decisions are being taken. And, you know, frankly, I think, you have to remember that we're we're always behind the eight ball when we're trying to calculate new case numbers. So the data we have today is, you know, there's a time lag there. And so I think people's concern about this new new framework is that um, it doesn't really take that into consideration. And so by the time the province is, is triggered to act, it's already going to be too late. I'm glad you brought up about the contact tracing because that's a, a, a sore point and always has been, I think, for an awful lot of people. I'm, I'm sure you've seen this data. The Ontario Health Coalition received, re, uh, re, released some data about this just the other day uh, about contact tracing, especially in some of the quote-unquote hotspots that the province had identified. Uh, and uh, the number of COVID-positive cases that have not been contact traced uh, in Toronto, it's 65%. In Durham, 275 In Ottawa, 488 Uh we're talking the talk here, Alison. We're not walking the walk. We're not doing a very good job of that. Right. And, you know, I think what's really concerning about that is that as we move into the colder months and people are gathering, you know, they're not limiting their contacts the way they should be, but that's happening behind closed doors. And so once we get into that kind of a situation, it makes contact tracing impossible, especially when we we see these cases going up. So there is a point at which contact tracing does become impossible. And so we can't just rely on that um, alone. And, you know, we're not great at it already. And I think the concern is that if the numbers continue to rise and people are, you know, gathering in places where, you know, we're not necessarily going to be able to see them, I think that becomes even more difficult. So, you know, I would encourage everybody to to get the COVID-19 app for their phone that helps with the contact tracing. Um, you know, the privacy concerns are very minimal with that, and it's 
you know, it's a bit of a crude instrument, but it's, it's at least a little bit of protection for people. Are we, and by that we, I mean the government, because they're the ones that are setting policy here, even focusing on the areas that need uh, that, that kind of focus, that kind of laser focus. Uh, and again, I'm going back to this uh, this report that was issued yesterday. Uh, it's got some troubling numbers here. The cases in schools apparently have grown significantly, an increase of 67.7% in two weeks. In the general community, the spread's only 24% in that same period of time. So it's, it's more than double uh, what's going on in the schools as to what we're seeing in the greater community right now. Yet I don't hear the government talking much about that at all. No, and I think I think the main goal here is to keep schools open and protect the economy. And I think people are concerned that the balance between um, taking a precautionary approach to COVID-19 and the economy is not is not quite right here. And so while this looks great for for businesses, and certainly I'm not minimizing the concerns that small business owners in particular have around, you know, sort of overly precautious shutdowns of their businesses, um, we have to remember that the, the, these things are not really, um, the trade-off isn't really between the two. They're intimately connected. And so, you know, it may be that this idea that a precautionary step into a more restrictive phase may actually have better long-term economic consequences. And that, that just doesn't seem to have come through in the thinking on this new color-coded system. Well, especially because if, if we're not doing a very good job of tracing this and tracking you know, where we've been and where the spread might have occurred, uh, it, it, it ruins consumer confidence. I mean, you know, I, you know, I know people that still are, are very, very nervous about going into a restaurant, even though you know, we're told oh, it's okay as long as you play by the rules, uh, uh, you know, or flying in an airplane or any number of different things like this. We seem to be getting lax, uh, and the statistics seem to indicate that there's some problems here that maybe we're not addressing. I totally agree, and I think that this is a this is going to be really interesting in some ways. Just see what happens because if if people's confidence in government is undermined by this new system, it doesn't matter how permissive the regime is. If people don't feel safe going to the hairdresser or going to eat out, they're not going to do it. And so, in, I'm not sure that he's got that balance right with this new um, new system. Also, because it's a little bit confusing for people. I mean, the stage one, two, three, we kind of got our heads wrapped around that. That's now being scrapped and replaced with this. And this is a little bit less transparent, to be honest. Like, I, as I was saying earlier, how are those key measures going to be weighed against each other? You know, what are the thresholds? Um, I think we've said, that they've said about if the community transmission or the, the percent of tests that are coming back is, is greater than 4% higher, um, then they will be moving into another phase but we haven't even seen that happen so i think that that the transparency around how these decisions will be taken is not there um and i think that sliding in and out of different phases is going to be really hard on businesses i don't know that that the restaurant business can actually operate in that way because there's no ability to plan for the future there well exactly and i think one of the concerns that that was raised in the old system, which, as you mentioned now, has been tossed into the blue bin, uh, was that they, they, they weren't very clear as to exactly why those determinations were made. In other words, is it just the number of cases? Is it, uh, you know, why was Peel in there? Why was York in there? Was it, and they, they weren't clear on this, and I don't necessarily think they have it either. The other element to this, too, that I wanted to get uh, your read on is, are we speaking an apples-to-apples comparison with, uh, with what we're doing here with data? I, I mentioned the schools a second ago. 
the Ontario government does report all cases that are reported in schools on their webpage, uh, but the Health Coalition here says that they've only classified 233 cases out of all over 2,000 uh, that were in school cases, uh, and it seems to be definition. In other words, they different definitions for different sectors as to what is a outbreak or, and, and, and where we should be concerned about that. It, it, it seems as if there's an inconsistency there, depending on which area they're talking about. Sure, and I think the other the other point of confusion is that when they report the numbers, um, what they're looking at is was the case contracted after school or in the community, and and so that can account for some of the discrepancy in reporting. Mm-hmm. You know, so if they if a kid shows up at school with COVID but they didn't get it at school, they count that differently than if a kid got COVID at school, and so. That, that can be very confusing. There's a, we've had my kids are in school. I keep getting emails from the principal of the school saying, you know, okay, this is why there's a discrepancy between, you know, our numbers and their numbers. And so it, it, is, it is quite confusing for people, I think. But if you're a parent, does it much matter? I mean, if you get information that uh, the, the, the school in which your child is attending, uh, there is a, an outbreak, so let's say, and we're not sure if the, if the child uh, that, that tested positive uh, got it at home or got it at the mall or got it at the school, it doesn't much matter to me as a parent. If I, I'm, I'm nervous about sending my kid there because I don't know whether or not, I don't care where they found it. The fact is he, he or she has tested positive, and, and that's going to raise the angst, I think, and the concern with a lot of parents to say, well, I don't want to expose my child to that. Hundred percent. I mean, I think it's it's it is alarming in the fact that you know the privacy issues mean that we can't really know um, too much about these cases, and so I think you know it, it's creating a tremendous amount of anxiety, especially for the the kids themselves and and the parents who may have been in the class with the kid. Uh, are being asked to quarantine for two weeks, uh, and you know they can go and get a test, but that, there's a tremendous amount of anxiety while they're waiting for the results of that, and you know parents are scrambling to figure out how to keep their kid home for two weeks and themselves home for two weeks. So it it is really tough. I think I think the more transparent and the simpler we can make things for people, um, you know, I think people want a little bit of control themselves. They don't want to have to completely rely on on the government for these numbers. It would be great for small businesses to be able to look at the numbers that are being reported and be able to predict themselves what's going to happen over the next few weeks. You know, oh, okay, so it's looking like we may be sliding into orange territory. You know, do I have to, do I have to, you know, stop ordering so much food from my restaurant or whatever? You know, I think that would really help people a lot. But that's the point, and you raised this weeks ago, and I was waiting to hear Dr. Williams or the Premier address it yesterday. What's the game plan? It's one thing to say, okay, you've moved from uh, from green to yellow or yellow to orange or whatever the color might be in your particular situation, but what are you required to do and what's the, the, the government's plan to try to alleviate that so you can get back into green? Uh, they, they're, they're not being very transparent about that as to what the protocol is supposed to be. And I, that's, that's information I think that is very, very important to this discussion. Absolutely, and I think I think you probably could find it if you dug around. And um, it's going to be a matter of how good they are at communicating that. I think part of the the difficulty too with this more targeted approach is, you know, people move around this province. You know, uh, my nephew's at school in Hamilton. I drive over there and see him sometimes. I bring him some food. You know, what what is what is the impact of people moving between regions, and how are they taking that into account as well? Because if if one 
area is is red and the next one is green, you know, how long is that going to last? So I think, I think this is all going to be a, a real challenge. And, you know, as Teresa Tam had said this week, too, you know, we need to be moving towards a system and a kind of habituation about living with COVID. You know, we're no, no longer in this sort of emergency phase like we were initially. We've got to start to learn to live with this. And I'm not sure that this system is going to help us do that. Exactly. Still a lot of questions, <laughs> uh, but the <laughs> colors are nice, I suppose. Uh, anyway, we'll continue to follow this and see what the, the Premier's got to say with his daily briefing today. Uh, Alison, always a pleasure to get your clarity and, and your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time. My pleasure. Take care. Take care. Professor Allison Thompson, of course, from the University of Toronto. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to touch base about uh, another story that, uh, that came across our, our desk the other day. Uh, this guy named Christopher Vanderweed, who is uh, known on social media as Helmet Guy, he's the guy that uh, was charged in the uh, incident, of course, at Gage Park in downtown Hamilton, uh, Gay Pride Week, of course, and uh, uh, his picture was all over the place. Well, he's back in the news again today for all the wrong reasons. York Region Police uh, say that he has been arrested once again because of threats online. Uh, Bernie Farber is the chair of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network and joins us to uh, give us a rundown of what's going on. Uh, Bernie, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Oh, I'm always happy to be with you, Bill. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is a character that we didn't want to hear from again, and here he is again. I, I guess, you know, the old thing about a leopard doesn't uh, lose its spots. Uh, this guy is what he is, and uh, he's, he's a hate monger. Well, in, indeed he is, and he's, uh, he's a hate monger who has uh, been involved in, uh, in, in an assault in, in the Hamilton area, um, charged and convicted of uh, using his helmet and striking a, um, you know, a person who was legally demonstrating in, in Hamilton. Uh, he, w- he was lucky not to go to jail. He was given some very specific conditions um, on his release, and uh, it wasn't too much longer that, uh, you know, he actually violated uh, those conditions. And sadly, myself um, and our executive director became the subject of his, of his hateful tirade. And had it only been a hateful tirade, I don't think we'd be having this conversation. But in fact, uh, you know, he threatened our lives uh, online. Uh, and that's, you know, uh, that's a criminal act. Uh, and uh, thankfully, the York Region Police took uh, appropriate action. Are you comfortable, Bernie, with the way the police do respond to these sorts of things? No, <laughs> I'm comfortable the way the, the way in which York Region Police uh, responded. Um, and, and your listeners might be wondering, well, what the heck is York Region Police responding to an issue of somebody who was charged in Hamilton and had his conditions uh, based on an assault that took place in Hamilton? Uh, why didn't Hamilton Regional Police? Uh, uh, do the breaching of his probation, which is what uh, YRP did, and why did they not charge him with uttering a threat? And the answer to that question is, I don't know. I can speculate. I can tell you what I've heard, uh, you know, from from a number of individuals. So let's go to the threat itself. The threat itself was made um, in a chat room online. Now, I think that a few people got thrown off because it was a private chat room. But any chat room can be entered if you know how to do that. And in this mm-hmm. private chat room, there were quite a number of people, dozens of people, in fact, having this conversation about uh, you know, what they thought of the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. Won't be the first hate group to, 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 uh, you know, to mouth off on us. Um, but it turned from anger to uh, violent words. And uh, Chris Vanderweide indicated that 
um, that we were, you know, garbage people, garbage Jews, uh, even though Evan himself is not, Jew- not Jewish, excuse me, and that we should be shot. That constitutes a threat. We saw it um, in, in, in the chat room. Uh, screen captures were taken of it. Uh, the entire dossier that we put together from beginning to end was sent to Hamilton uh, Police Services. Uh, the word that we received back from Hamilton Police Services is that they were not, uh, they were not going to take any action. And I have to tell you, Bill, that, 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 was it? that concerned me. That was it? That was the explanation? That was the explanation. What I heard was that it had more to do with the language of the threat. It said that Bernie Farber should be shot as opposed to Bernie Farber must be shot. Uh, I, I would find that astounding, but I can't think of any other logical reason, and even that's illogical, to be honest. I mean, you know, hate mongers are not parsing the grammar of a sentence in a, in, a, in a chat room. I mean, anybody reasonably reads that would take that as a threat. I certainly do. Now, as it happens, I, I live in York Region, um, and uh, I have a very good relationship with the uh, police service here. And because of the work that I do, I keep in very close contact with them. So I shared the same, the exact same dossier uh, that I shared with Hamilton Police Service, I shared with York Region Police, not really thinking much other than I wanted them to be aware of who Christopher Vanderweide was and the threats that he made on my life. Uh, it was only a couple of days later that I heard from York Region Police who said that they have investigated this. Uh, they have issued a warrant for Mr. Vanderweide's arrest. They will be charging him with uttering a threat and breaching uh, and a breach of his uh, uh, probation orders. Um, he was picked up, I believe, on a Monday, a Sunday evening, a late Sunday evening or early Monday morning, um, uh, in 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 the Goderich area, I believe. Uh, brought to York Region Police, where he was, as they say, their, his, their guest overnight. He was brought before a justice of the peace, where he was remanded, and he. Uh, uh, he's out now on a uh, on a cash surety with a whole bunch of very stringent conditions, and I, I, get, I understand he appears in court again on November 23rd. Uh, I know our time is tight here, but I, the frustration I'm sure you feel uh, with the response from Hamilton Police Services on this is uh, they've already, of course, uh, got under a great deal of, uh, uh, shall we say, uh, discussion uh, about the way they handled the incident at Gage Park last year as well. Uh, you know, the inaction is the way some people yeah. have described yeah. it. On, uh, and for them to take a hands-off approach to this particular situation uh, is, well, puzzling, shall we say. Well, it's, it's, it's more than puzzling. It, it's deeply troubling. Uh, I've worked with police services across the country, RCMP, CSIS, Ottawa Police, Toronto. Um, I have never seen a situation where such a full dossier and such an obvious case uh, was not, to the best of my knowledge, not even brought before a Crown uh, Council to determine whether or not uh, a case should go forward. Uh, It took York Region Police less than 48 hours to figure this one out. Um, and, And I think it's not just my case, Bill. It's, it's a series of cases in, in the manner in which Hamilton Police Services have either mishandled or refused to handle cases of hatred. And I think it, it should be investigated either internally, although I would have a much greater level of comfort if it was uh, examined externally of somebody not connected to the service, and, and helped people understand why this happened. This seems to be... You know, one police service, which is basically on, on, the, on the border of the Hamilton Police Service, um, you know, operating with the same set of circumstances, come to a very different and a much more logical conclusion. 
Bernie, we're going to continue to follow this story and uh, try to get some explanation, and uh, we'll certainly stay in touch with you over the next couple of days if Terrific. we get anything on this. Thanks so much for the time today, Thank Bernie. Thank you stay so w- much, Bill. You'll be well. Stay well. Bernie Farber, okay. chair of the uh, Canadian Anti-Hate Network. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is a story that we've been following for the last couple of years. With the uh, increased popularity, of course, of streaming services, uh, comes the concern about, uh, well, revenue. And uh, mainstream media, radio, television, print, whatever the case might be, are, are concerned about the fact that streaming services are using their platforms to basically give a lot of the product that other media outlets are doing, and they're getting it for free. Well, this uh, policy change from Ottawa, and it's only a proposal at this stage, uh, is uh, basically setting down a set of rules uh, with these new regulations. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Adam Oldfield, the president of FPM and FPM3 Marketing. And, of course, he is the host of Tech Talk, which we do every Friday on the Bill Kelly Show. Uh, Adam, good to have you with us again. Uh, I guess you wouldn't be surprised by this because you've been talking about something along these lines for the last couple of years now. Yeah, this has been boiling and brewing for a while inside the CRTC, and I think we've talked about it, on, as you mentioned, many occasions, uh, and, and it's it's starting to percolate to the point where it's it's now about to rise. Um, and, and I mean, it, it, it was inevitable it was going to happen, Bill. I think one of the things we've talked many times, and, and many people are, are commenting that, you know, we don't get the same content that's in the U.S., uh, we are migrating more. I think I saw the stats at like 60% of Netflix is, is now, uh, you know, paid by prescription or subscription, sorry. And, uh, you know, whether it's Spotify or Prime or Disney or uh, any of these streaming services, they kind of came with an onslaught of, uh, you know, here's what we're going to build per month. This is what you get access to. And, and the CRTC, rightfully so, has a mandate to make sure that Canadian content, CanCon, is, is relevant. Uh, and, and obviously it's, it's encouraging Canadian producers to make this content. Now, Netflix has committed in the past millions and millions of dollars into Canadian content, whether it's filming production or, you know, the Umbrella Academy and Hamilton and many other product uh, uh, productions that's been made. This is, uh, you know, I guess, like we said, inevitable it's going to happen. My concern to this, if it does pass, Bill, which I believe it will, uh, is that we as consumers, uh, you know, where we kind of leap into the digital streaming world to go, look how much money I'm saving, is, is about to feel it. We're not going to see a CRTC come down with a ruling of saying Netflix, uh, Spotify, Amazon, you're all going to have to cut your share, feed the coffers of the Canadian content wheel, and not expect the consumer to pay for it. That's the only thing that I, I'm concerned for for Canadians. The concern here, though, on the other side of that coin is if they don't do something like this, uh, basically, and we've already seen this begin to happen, uh, a, a number of these other media outlets are simply going to fall, fall by the wayside. I mean, they're, they're losing money. They're laying off people. Some of them are shutting down altogether. Uh, and these guys are running merrily along saying, hey, we got a free ride here. Absolutely. And I know that's the debate of, of where we look at, uh, you know, is it going to crush the existing market or the streaming services we have? Um, you know, and I, I think when you talk to Canadians, we don't want to lose our, our local uh, content. We want that. That is integral. But of course, uh, everybody can't get it for free. So this is a it's a, it's a real challenge. And we got to remember that Netflix and, and Amazon Prime, all these streaming channels, minus our local content, they're not Canadian owned. These are not Canadian. They're in Canadian markets. They're providing to a Canadian service programming and 
uh, you know, and, and we've seen what Netflix is trying to do. And I think you and I spoke about this uh, about three weeks ago on our tech talk was YouTube is now agreeing to uh, or Google Alphabet is now agreeing to provide money that is going to be supportive of journalistic streaming content. Um, however, what, again, what concerns me is we we've got this market in Canada that is controlled by the uh, streaming services that are existing and they really do call all the shots. If the CRTC pushes too hard and tries to really aggressively comment on here's the new rates and this is how you're going to need to now contribute Netflix, Google, uh, Amazon, um, they, they, and I refer to these corporations, kind of look at Canada as not necessarily a reason of why they exist with business. They have a massive market in the U.S., in Europe, all markets. Canada is a nice addition. Um, what we really should have, and hopefully out of this money, I would love to see somehow an outlet come out of this. Uh, whether it's a local one or otherwise, and be able to say with the money that could be contributed, we could see a Canadian version of a streaming service exist. Well, and that's th already happening in various forms. I mean, you know, our, our course entertainment, of course, our parent company, uh, you know, they, they've global television, of course, and global streams their stuff, uh, CBC does. Uh, they're all into the game right now. The problem, as we see it here, is that uh, – what governs uh, broadcasting in this country, of course, as you mentioned, the CRTC, the Canadian Radio Television Commission, uh, the piece of legislation that uh, emboldens them is called the Broadcasting Act. Uh, it hasn't been updated in 30 years. 30 years ago, we were talking about any of this. There was no streaming. There was none of that stuff. Uh, you know, so uh, we, we're talking about old-fashioned regulations here, trying to deal with the 21st century uh, reality uh, that streaming is 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 where it's at right now. Uh, and those systems, as you mentioned, the ones that are already on, like Netflix and Spotify and so many others, uh, fall through the cracks. In other words, everyone else who's around including, you know, well, radio stations, television stations, whatever the case, we we got to play by the rules of the Broadcasting Act, and if we don't, there are some serious consequences. These guys are simply saying, nah, we don't really need to do that. We're different. Well, no, you're not really different. Uh, it's it's a different service, but it's the way broadcasting has evolved. Uh, and I think what the government's attempting to do here is simply saying, look, you're more than welcome to be here, uh, but you got to play by the same rules vis-a-vis -vis content, et cetera, et cetera, and, and paying your fair share. Uh, I agree, and I think you're right. I mean, in 1991, Napster was the biggest news when it came yeah. to the Internet, and they were just downloading content. There was no streaming. Streaming has only been, uh, pardon the pun, mainstream uh, in the last four to five years. As much as we think Netflix has been here forever, it's really only been around for five years. Disney only launched uh, less than two years ago. Um, so we can see that, you know, you're right. Uh, when we talk about a governing body and the Broadcasting Act, when we talk about any kind of government act, it takes years to reform. Um, maybe it's good they let it go a while because it has changed so much. It has uh, adjusted so quickly. I, I just look at it as Canadians and as a, you know, we look at streaming costs. And I mean, this is a topic we'll discuss Friday, but I'm going to go over a little bit about what our Canadian content uh, data expenses are. Um, these are just going to top add on to a Canadian cost to, uh, to be involved, whether it's we have to pay more for the streaming service because they're going to download that to Canadians, that's for sure. Or, um, you know, as we know, our internet 
that services that we're paying for, whether it's cellular or uh, land side, is going to cost. So this is also going to be impacted because the broadcasters that are streaming it, um, and thank God that, you know, we have uh, Chorus and Global Network uh, has their local content to exist, but this content is going to be forced by other streaming services or internet services. There's going to be a cost, and that means we as consumers are the ones that are going to have to pay for it. So this is the reality, no matter what happens, when this act gets adjusted, there's going to be a little bit of an increase across the board. And and by the way, this is, and again, this is a proposal, we want to say. This is not, you know, carved in stone yet. And I'm sure there's going to be some discussion and some debate, and, and there's going to be some input from this. But it levels the playing field. I, I, I'm okay with that. I think that was necessary. Uh, and I know what, you know when they first approached uh, the, you know, these companies, Adam, and you, talk, you talked about this on Tech Talk a couple of years ago. Uh, there, you know, Netflix and others. Their first impression was, well, you know, maybe we'll just pack up shop and leave. Well, you know, they're not going to do that. Uh, that's that's just an idle threat. They'll 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 ante up and they'll come through on this, and it's going to make for a, a much easier situation. But what I'm I'm just looking at the overview of this. Uh, one of the, the other things I find encouraging about that, because you're talking about Canadian content, and and you know, as you say, Netflix has already started to do that sort of thing. Uh, they're really uh, to have a discussion about redefining exactly what Canadian content is, too. I mean, again, it's been over 30 years since they've defined what that is. The industry has changed, and, and I think they have to look at the regulations and say, okay, can we tweak this a little bit? So that's, that's encouraging. They're not simply saying these are the rules. If you don't like it, go home. They're saying, well, let's talk about the rules, too. Absolutely. And I think, you know, uh, hopefully when this comes together, one of the other areas, and, and this will be tough when they actually write the bill, is, you know, and, and what I've heard or what I've seen is that they're not going to, when we talk about the laws and the generating of content, as much as we know Netflix and the streamings are the they're, the, they're just the distributors. Really, when we talk about the content, when we are describing, you know, the Adam and Bill Kelly Tech Talk show, um, doing this kind of a content, um, one of the things that I saw in there is that user-generated content uh, news content, uh, even video games for that matter, uh, aren't going to be impacted in that development or at least what they're claiming won't be impacted. So one of the first gut feelings when I saw this was, oh gosh, here we go. Someone's going to be successfully running a YouTube channel, uh, you know, running a video game example of watching Minecraft of them playing a video game. They're in Canada and all of a sudden, you know, their fees are going to be impacted because they would be compensated by YouTube or Alphabet uh, with regards to them creating this Canadian content on YouTube. There's a lot of variable moving parts here. Uh, and this is, this is going to be, uh, I would say, not something they're going to be able to quickly uh, introduce and vote on uh, because there are so many aspects to it. And one of them, just to speak to that, is where is it going to be in the next five years, Bill? Um, you know, you and I talk about this as to what is coming out. We've got augmented reality. We've got virtual reality. Those things need to be impacted or discussed under the CRTC because that's coming in the next three to five years when we actually have our streaming, our news, our content. These are the adaptable things that are going to need to be written in the new 2020-2021 uh, Broadcasting Act. Well, exactly. And, and, and uh, I'm hoping, to your point, uh, that there is some stipulation in this act, if in fact they're going to pass this, uh, you know, the way it seems to be written right now, uh, to to make uh, changes as we go along, because the industry is changing so quickly. Uh, and you know, I, and I, I get your point. I mean, there's always going to be a concern from consumers and say, well, you know, you're, you're going to have to pay more. Uh, we know that. I mean, you know, as these things evolve, I mean, you know, I'm paying a lot more for Netflix than I did three years ago. Uh, it's just it's just the way things are. But it it, it 
it puts everybody on notice, I think, about what's going on. I Listen, I've been in the business long enough. I remember when they put restrictions on music content, when we were back in the days when we were doing Top 40 radio. And and there was a hue and cry from the industry then. They'd, oh, you're going to kill this. You know, you're going to make us play Canadian artists. Uh, you know, they want to hear the Beatles and Led Zeppelin. They don't want to hear Anne Murray and Gordon Lightfoot or, you know, Randy Bachman. Uh, yeah, we do. Uh, uh, and it's, yeah. it's, I, I think the long-term benefit to that is it's, it's, it really saw the Canadian music industry grow considerably. Uh, and we've got world-class performers. And, and I don't know that that would have happened to the extent that it did if those, those regulations didn't come into place. And the stuff that we've done in broadcasting on television right now, look at the industry right now. The Canadian industry is, is, is booming. I know we've got a number of Canadian productions that are actually seen all over the world. Schitt's Creek comes to mind as, as the best example of that, of course. You know, won all the Emmys just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, that's Canadian content. I mean, so, you know, you don't shirk away and say, well, it's Canadian content. It's going to be substandard. Not not really. It's it's world-class stuff. Absolutely. These aren't the days of the beachcombers, which, by the way, yeah. is a classic and a well-liked one at that. Right, Bill? Yeah, so, it, it is. You know. <laughs> Love Bruno Gerussi. Well, I, I have to agree. So, I, I mean, from the rulings, I'm going to keep on top of this with our show, but I think from a listening audience perspective, I always like to bring up the fact that these changes that are be- happening, uh, what I would like to see out of this under the ruling in the government's laws is I would love to be able to see with these incentives and adjust- uh, adjustments that they do offer a lot of tax credits, intellectual property. If they're filming in Canada, the talent is Canadian, the writers are Canadian. I mean, they, if I remember correctly from my days, it was always four, three out of four parts has to be Canadian. So I think right now a lot of the elements are being somewhat subjective to the laws, uh, but it needs to be, uh, you know, could be a boom even bigger as far as investment as well. If they do pass this, it might be a bigger incentive for Facebook and Apple and whoever else in the Goliaths that are looking to de- generate these streaming systems to invest in Canada, to create an, an atmosphere that we talked about Hollywood north for that matter and and it was a dream at some point so hopefully that will come back and when they write these laws it could be a great incentive for these companies to go what was i thinking see you later hollywood uh hello hamilton we're coming to town we're going to be setting up and we're going to have our broadcast studios all developed and in canada so there's a positive out of this as much as what you talked about i i think of as an investment side it will be good as well well, and let's connect the dots here. We already know that there's a film studio that's uh, going to be cropping up and has already started uh, working here in the north end of the city of Hamilton, uh, down by the waterfront, and uh, and that's exciting news. I, I can see this complementing that production and, and that, that project uh, very much uh, because it's going to encourage investment into the industry. And you're right that, you know, there's got to be, a, a, I hate to use the phrase, uh, the, the Trumpism here, but a quid pro quo on this. Uh, the, the folks in the industry are going to be looking for some tax breaks and incentives to do that, and that's fair ball, and I'm sure the government's going to be willing to have that discussion too. Absolutely, and I, I'm following that. I, if we were to take a look at it, I think the big thing is we need more Canadian content to be developed, and what is the incentive to do that? And, and I mean, like, again, uh, a political question you and I will probably have an answer on Friday, um, which, by the way, will probably be a hot topic on how that impacts technology, but yep. uh, once we determine who is the leader of the next political uh, uh, operations in the United States is going to also impact 
where and what this law means. So as far as uh, Canadians are concerned, uh, two, two factors to be clear. Number one, we need to create more Canadian content and we need more investment of Canadian talent to be able to develop it. Uh, and we hopefully will see, uh, you know, Netflix and these other Goliath companies uh, not only have to contribute, but maybe it would even be more incentive for them to support Canadian content as they have been milking the system through, I know Facebook directly milks a lot of the, the content and journalistic development that they're not paying for, but making revenue off the advertising. So th- this is a big change, and I think it will be good for Canada as a whole, uh, as, as content developers and as producers, uh, that we'll be able to actually keep Canada's uh, broadcasting alive. Uh, so hopefully, like I said, the Broadcasting Act, whatever they come up with, somebody better be thinking not about what the laws are today, but where it's going to be in the future in the next five years. Okay, we got to leave it for now, but I'm sure we'll pick this up, as you mentioned, when we do Tech Talk Friday at 11.30 here on the program. Uh, talk to you in a couple of days, Adam. Thanks for this today. Thanks, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Adam Oldfield, of course, the uh, president and CEO of FPM and FPM3 Marketing and uh, the host of Tech Talk, which we hear at 11.30 on Fridays on this program. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.